everyone, and welcome to the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities presents Hometown Haunts. I'm your host, Kat Logo, and tonight with me in the shadows is Christina Wald and Jen Kohler. But right now we have a returning guest, Amy Hassebrock. You remember her from episode 15, where we told about the story of Edith Klump. Welcome back, Amy. Hi, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yes. Oh, this will be a fun discussion. Before we dive into it, though, I want to remind our listeners that you can find us at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter, Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And now you have a new email you can send us your hometown haunts to, which is hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. And also, we're an official podcast on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube as well. Please like and subscribe and share this goodness with all your friends who are into spooky things. And tonight is a wonderful true crime show again, because we have Amy. This is Arsenic Annie of Cincinnati. Listener, uh discretion is advised because we do talk about murder on this episode lots of murder (laughs) so much murder so much poisoned men it's raining dead men anyway so we are joined again tonight by special guest amy smith hasabrock of the skeleton key chronicles who covered who like i just stated we covered this in episode 15 with amy the murder of the murderess edith klump um amy hasabrock is a local true crime researcher and writer who is currently heavily involved in the project focusing on the Vicker and Norris, also known as the Toolbox Killers case. Uh, Her blog is a skeleton key chronicles features her writings on a wide range of dark topics, including historic murders, oddities, and the paranormal. Welcome back, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. And tonight we're talking about the life and crimes of Anna Marie Hahn, also known as Arsenic Annie or the Blonde Sail. Sa- I wanted to say Sailor. Am I the only one that keeps reading it that way? It's the Blonde sl- Slayer. Yeah, the Blonde Slayer. Or the Cincinnati Slayer. For her murders yeah. of five men in Cincinnati from 1933 through 1937. We've got a historic crime today. Yeah, she was a busy lady. She was busy. So, what can you tell us about her, Amy? Okay, we've got our lovely Anna Marie Hahn. Um, She was born Anna Marie Filser in, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that picture of that castle that belonged to King King Ludwig. It's up on a hill. It's the white castle. He was known as the Swan King. Oh, is that Um, the Cinderella castle? That huge one? Absolutely. So, Anna Marie Hahn was born Anna Marie Filser. Hahn was her married name. And she was born in a region of Bavaria that's actually best known for King Ludwig's castle. Um, He was a really famous king in the area and had this beautiful white castle up on this hill. I mean, it's a real place. People visit all the time. But her little village that she's from, it was called Fusen. And it's right there at the bottom of the hill where this gigantic castle is. So I thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, She came to the United States. She was sort of exiled here uh, by her parents for shaming the family when she became pregnant. As a youngish woman, she wasn't exactly super young for the time. She was 19, but um, it was enough to shame her parents. And they made some arrangements to send her here to Cincinnati, 
with a family member who had already come over from Germany. He was actually the uh, stepbrother of her mother. And his name was Max and his wife's name was Anna. They were Max and Anna Doschel. They lived here in Cincinnati and they agreed to have Anna Marie come and stay with them. Uh, and they actually paid part of her fare her to get her over here on the ship that she came over mm -hmm. on. $236 to be exact, which was a pretty penny back then. Oh and yeah, Max, that is. Yeah, Max definitely wanted the money back. He, you know, they made arrangements because Anna was going to pay him back. And really, you know, in hindsight, Max was one of the first of many men that Anna swindled. Um, but he was lucky to make it out alive. <laughs> um, but she did indeed come over and uh, never paid him back for that trip. Her, her time with the Doshals didn't last long. Um, she came and got a job uh, working at the Alms Hotel, and they noticed she was spending a lot of the money that she was earning on personal effects and not paying them any of that 236 bucks back. So they were not liking that at all. And then one day she just up and disappeared, um, and they lost touch with her. Wow. So, yeah. It was at that time that Anna found another long-lost family member. This one even more removed than Max. Um, she met a man that she called Uncle Carl or Uncle Charlie. Um, this guy was a relative, not a blood relative, through marriage. Uh, Uncle Charlie became another benefactor of hers and really her staunch supporter. Um, Anna could do no wrong in his eyes. She was constantly borrowing money and things like that. So. He was another man that kind of came in and helped keep her up from a monetary standpoint. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this is all in the over the Rhine neighborhood, which I wanted to point out for some of our listeners that don't live in the Cincinnati area. That was what's called the old German district. It's a large portion of Cincinnati down. Well, now it's downtown, but before it wasn't really considered downtown. And it was called Over the Rhine because according to residents, it felt like you were traveling over the Rhine River to get into this neighborhood from the Erie or Miami canals because there used to be a lot of canals downtown. Mm -hmm. And this is the place that now has a lot of bars and restaurants and back then had a lot of bars and restaurants in beer gardens. And they're starting mm -hmm. to revive a lot of those. Uh, but about half the population of the Over the Rhine or OTR neighborhood was made of German immigrants. And just about everybody that she murdered was a German immigrant so, or yeah. swindled. It was, she was really targeting because she was a part of that community. So that, that was a big thing. Um, and also just a fun fact, the Alms Hotel still stands. It's now the Alms Apartments. And it is in Walnut Hills along Victory Parkway in William Howard Taft. So ah. you can go by there and go, hey, that's where that murder lady used to work before she murdered all the people. Right. She also met her future husband there, Philip. Yeah. Uh, they originally met at Coney Island. I think she saw him at Coney Island and he, she thought he was cute I don't know five feet tall thin mustache slender guy so not exactly sure what she's seeing there but anyway later on they met at a dance at the Alms Hotel she remembered him as being the guy at Coney Island the station and they ended up marrying he too was a German immigrant and that like you mm -hmm. 
things that connected all these people. They all shared a common dialect and language. So German, you know, yeah. At that time, Cincinnati had full German newspapers, you know, actually two that were completely written in German. So it's an interesting place to do research. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's a little bit of a note that she was from Bavaria, like we were just talking about. Um, And this is probably also a shared thing because we have a lot of Bavarian Germans that settled here, which is why we have Oktoberfest. Yeah. Yeah. So versus all the Northern Germans, which is where my husband's family's from. And that's the reason for this strange name that I may be pointing to and you can see in the box. (laughs) But anyway, so back to Anna and uh, Philip. Yes. So we have Anna and Philip. You know, Philip's the little wiry uh, man. He works at Western Union Telegraph and Telegram. Um, He works the overnight shift, which is really convenient for Anna Marie Hahn because sometimes she likes to take her gentleman friends back to her home and pretend like she's a single mom. So they might come at seven or eight in the evening, have a beer, husband's off at work. Everything seems copacetic. It seems like her story jibes. So that was just an added layer of a way that she would perpetuate her stories of being this, you know, the single mom, you know, always like running on, you know, hard luck and borrowed time. You know, she had a story for everybody. She was known for, you know, you know, the story of Anne Marie Hahn is interesting because she dressed up as a nurse. She literally mm-hmm. would wear a nurse's outfit. She would advertise her services as a nurse and a housekeeper and elderly caretaker. But she made no bones about going in full nurse's attire, even though that that was not at all her profession. Um, I always thought that was kind of interesting and a little extra weird, like if you thought about it in today's world, you know, completely masquerading as a profession that one wasn't. Obviously that added to her, you know, validity and the fact that these people did really like her. She had a great personality. She was bubbly. Um, Guys thought she was good looking, uh, petite, blonde. um, And she really had a way to charm these guys. And I think she really uh, played to their white knight kind of syndrome. You know, she was always the damsel in distress. Oh my God, I need a hundred dollars. I need this. I need that. You know, in a lot of these guys' apartments after they were, or their homes after they were murdered, they would find love letters, IOUs out the wazoo, Mm -hmm. you know, where she had promised, I'll pay you back a hundred bucks. I'll pay you back. IOUs in excess of like a thousand dollars, which was a ton of money back then. Yeah. So she was always borrowing, but she was borrowing under the presumption that she would pay it back. And these guys believed it. And really, in most cases, she killed them so quickly from the time that she met them. There really wasn't a lot of time to bother the lady about paying them back because they, Mm -hmm. in some cases, they were dead in three or four months. They were dead in three or four. Sorry, it cut out again. Oh, snow in Cincinnati. Um, Yeah. So they were dead within like, what, three or four weeks well, like, yeah, in some cases, these men were dead in uh, like three or four months of meeting her. So they didn't Oof. really have a lot, a lot of time to bother her for this money that she owed them because she would literally, you know, kill them. Uh, there was one exception to that. Uh, there was a man by the name of uh, George. George Hess. Uh, yeah, yeah, George Hess. He was one of her benefactors. Uh, he was an interesting guy. Yeah. And he was, 
he was the only guy to survive this lady. I thought that was, he was a he's little bit super of a, observant. <laughs> yeah, he survived. George Heiss survived. He owned a coal company. Uh, and he actually inherited that from his father. Uh, what really got George into trouble was he started taking uh, loans from the coal company and oh. loaning money to Anna Marie. So in addition to coming out of his own pocket, he was taking money from, you know, the company. And that brought a lot of heat on him and in turn brought a lot of heat on her. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, she was up to her old, you know, shenanigans. She was poisoning this guy just as hard and as fast as she could, but to no avail. Uh, George was sick often, but he didn't succumb to any of the poison. Uh, instead, he actually lived on and filed several lawsuits against her and even testified at her murder trial. Oh, wow. Was, yeah, he was a very compelling witness. They wheeled him in front of the jury in his wheelchair that he was supposedly in only because of, you know, the, all of the poisoning that she had done to him over the past year that they had known one another. So mm -hmm. he was a survivor and a compelling witness for sure. Um, but I love how he survived by paying attention to the beer. Yes, the beer. Yes. He said he felt really poorly after drinking a beer and that kind of helped him connect the dots. So, yeah. Yeah. And then one of the other news articles that I read at the time was that he noticed that houseflies were landing in the beer and trying to take sips from it and then immediately dying afterwards. And then that when he approached her and said, Hey, do you want a sip of this? And she's like, nah, I'm good. I'm good, George. Why don't you just go drink all that? That was also a huge red flag. Yeah. So Guy was observant and got his revenge against her, I guess. He did. I mean, yeah. you know, he lived to tell the tale and he was the only uh, living witness, as they referred to him during the trial in very dramatic mm -hmm. fashion. Um, it's interesting because uh, she started her first victim, first that we know of, for sure, was Ernst Kohler. Um, he was a teamster. He Sorry, lived Jen. In... Her last name's Kohler as well. <laughs> yes, this is Ernst Kohler, maybe a long lost relative. Um, mm. The wealthy teamster, a wealthy teamster who was a union leader. Um, he actually lived at this beautiful home located at 2950 Coal Rain, and it was built and designed by Charles H. Blackburn, who was a prominent Cincinnati criminal lawyer. So that was a guy that had a ton of money, and he built this beautifully appointed home, three stories, uh, beautiful moldings and staircases and finishes. So this Ernst Kohler guy apparently did really well for himself, lived in this home, um, it was so big and he had gotten older. So he rented out uh, a room below to his son who was a doctor. Uh, the doctor had his office there and he was treating his father for esophageal cancer. Oof. Um, there was some other rooms for boarders and took one of those rooms. So Anna and Philip moved into one of those other rooms and uh, you have basically this makeshift family living there. Anna quickly moves in uh, and under the father's good graces, what a lot of these old guys did and started, you know, kind of falling in love with her, uh, changing his will around. She was very manipulative. 
would go immediately and have these guys start changing around uh, beneficiaries and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. She it's did elder abuse, basically, is what absolutely. she was doing. Absolutely. I mean, Ernst was 62. So, I mean, he wasn't exactly like, I don't know. I mean, not an extreme elder. Right. He he wouldn't be in social security yet if he was in the United States now. He'd still be spry and working wherever, but still, that's really manipulative and a type of financial abuse, basically, in a way. Absolutely. And it's kind of weird that all this went on like while his son is has an office right downstairs. Some of the stuff she got away with was really interesting. Am I sure no, she was up? savvy? Yeah, yeah, she really was. The the interesting thing is that living at Kohler's house, she had access to this son's doctor's office. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where he has an office. Oh. Apparently she would go in there and use the phone all the time. And he caught her in there once using the phone um i catch her stealing his prescription pads Ish. she which she also did um he's pulled the prescription pads and wrote multiple uh prescriptions for and i uh, would take them around the corner Oop. store Oop. Where we're losing you amy are we okay yeah just tell me you where may just have to repeat to um where she would take the prescription pads and then i didn't catch what she would have filled at the pharmacy okay okay so um the thing about living there with Kohler's son is she had office she would break in well not okay the thing about living there was she had access to Kohler's son's doctor's office where she would access occasionally at one point she uh came in to use the phone and he caught her um, there were other times where she came in and stole his prescription pads and he did not catch her. Um, she was writing prescriptions for morphine. Uh, mm-hmm. She would take them around the corner to rob. Did I freeze again? Did Just the pharmacy again? name. Okay. That's okay. Oh, I'm freezing again. Oh, shit. Ooh. Okay. She would take them around the corner to Ross Pharmacy where she had befriended the pharmacist and have them filled. She had told the pharmacist that her husband was a chemist from familiar with all of these different drugs. And she, she procured many things from Ross pharmacy after developing this relationship. Uh, she would wow. get croton. Yeah. She would get croton oil there. She would get chloride uh, of mercury, um, various uh, drugs and things that weren't was able to procure at Roth's because of her relationship with Mr. Roth, the pharmacy owner. Anyway, where were we? We were with uh, Roth Pharmacy and that's how she was just getting her menagerie of uh, deadly poisons was from her access to this pharmacy and all these medical pads. And uh, which brings us to what one of the detectives says later after the warrants have been served and they go through her house but anyway um okay so is this also when she's working in the bakery or is this after she was working in the bakery at otr okay well was she had gotten a ton of money from uncle charlie uncle charlie the guy who was sort of her distant distant relative through marriage uh she she had gotten this uh he, he was a banker by trade um, and he had lots of union gas and electric stock 
and he was giving that to her. So what happened was, was in 1930, she took some of this money and went back to get her son in Bavaria, Mm -hmm. because when she came originally, she came solo and left Oscar there with her parents. In 1930, she took some of this money that Charlie had given her, Uncle Charlie had given her, went back and got Oscar, came back home, and within a year or so, started selling all of that stock off, and she bought a bakery at first. People were wondering, how did this lady get this money to buy this bakery where, like, everybody's in the Depression right now, nobody's Mm -hmm. got a dime, and she's starting this new business. Um, She did, and she did that with funds from selling that stock that Uncle Charlie had given her. The bakery was at 3201 Cole Rains in her same area. A lot of her victims, as you said, were in OTR in the old German neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the bakery stayed open for one year. Uh, oh. Another interesting thing is that she was running like sort of like a, a bookie kind of thing out of the bakery, like taking gambling bets and whatnot, because that was really her favorite pastime, it seemed. And probably why she was taking a lot of this money to pay for her gambling addiction which yeah, she was pretty burning through thousands of dollars massive amounts of money for back then massive amounts yeah. of money yeah and that bakery only lasted a year and then they started up a deli this was oh. their next business venture they started a deli her and her husband at uh 3007 Colerain, so same part of town uh, and she sold that three years later. So that didn't last either. The businesses were really considered not thriving. So um, I don't know what she was thinking. She had a, a manic mindset. It was like she was just running from thing to thing, constantly putting out fires. Wouldn't be yeah. a very good way to live your life, you know? No, uh, I am wondering if she had some mental health that I don't want to say issues, but like suffered from bipolar or some type of manic thing. Absolutely. Um, the case harkens yeah. of those tendencies, you know, for sure, because she was yeah. very impulsive and, you know, it, it just, and was sort of in a flurry of activity. It seems yeah. at all times, starting new businesses and kind of doing things that don't really yeah. seem like the best idea but yeah. um, I, I i make this statement for our listeners because i'm a daughter of somebody with bipolar disorder so those manic episodes that are reported sound a lot like one of my parents mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. That, that's why i make that statement it was just reading that i was like huh well this sounds familiar yeah i i couldn't agree with you more on that um, it's interesting. So as all of these different things coalesce, you know, she had the, these things going on in her personal life with Philip, you know, doing the bakery, losing the deli. You know, as those situations started to take their toll, that's when her uh, procurement of elderly gentlemen's funding sped up big time. I mean, that's when she really started to ramp up the show. Just the way you phrased that made me chuckle. <laughs> yeah, she really put it into high gear at that point. Um, you know, we talked about Ernest Kohler, the, the nice old man in the beautiful home. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, he passed away uh, and he left her everything. He left her the house. He Whoa. left her all of the information. It was a well-appointed three-story home. I mean, it was a beautiful home. He even left her his ashes, which she sat wow. on the mantle at the beautiful home that lived in. Wow. So what happened to his son? 
I know. I like kind of wonder, like, why didn't his son protest more? I did read an article where after the fact, sort of after all the chips were down and she had been arrested, that the family uh, against her. I read that the family had filed a lawsuit against her and um, presumably the son was part of that law. They were granted of $4,000. Only four thousand dollars? Are we are we going? Yeah, it kind of. Yeah. I missed you on the four thousand dollars bit. Okay, let me try again. Yeah, I I started doing. Found that after the chips had fallen and she had been arrested, the family of Kohler did file a lawsuit against her, and they were granted like uh, I think it was four thousand dollars. So not much considering she got his entire estate. Uh, Wow. She definitely had a way of finagling herself into uh, a man's good finances. situations, like right for her right. beneficial. Now, did she live in this house until she was arrested? She did. She stayed in this house. She even took out mortgages on it. Uh, at the end yeah. of the, at the, you know, after everything happened, the house was mortgaged to the nth degree, which she had previously owned free and clear. So this lady was looking for a way to get money you know she was always searching for funds um he died on may 6 and uh at the time no and the autopsy showed you know just a uh an esophageal a death due to esophageal cancer a lot of his family members had called into the coroner's office and made them aware of their concerns of possibly something happening to him poisoning and the coroner said because he saw no poison deposited in the throat area that he just attributed the death to esophageal cancer. Wow. Yeah, yeah. not cool. Not cool. Okay. Is our uh, Jacob Wagner. He was another yeah. German immigrant, a retired gardener, uh, upstanding guy in the community. Uh, she came to his door and said she was a long lost niece. And <laughs> while he knew his family lineage well and did not buy that story whatsoever, he found her very charming. And once again, invited her in. And here we go 2.0. Um, <laughs> Electric Boogaloo? That's later. That's the end yeah, of the story. That's with true. Old Sparky. That, oh, that is later. <laughs> we should not be laughing about that. That was so anyway. <laughs> All right. So uh, we got we got Albert Parker. Yes, Albert Parker. He's a one of our uh, victims. He had a beautiful three-story home as well at 2416 Central Parkway. She liked those three-story homes. She knew if yeah, somebody owned a three-story that they were established. Is that like so, an uh, old Cincinnati thing? Is that an OTR thing? Huh. I know, yeah. I know there are lots of walk-ups in OTR and I know that area, some of those big old homes. You know, it's kind of like the ones in Clifton off of uh, Ludlow and back there, mm -hmm. those big old stately homes. But uh, mm -hmm. this was the same with Albert Palmer. He was 72. Uh, he was in great health when he met Anna. People report him as being spry and a healthy man in January. Um, within three months, he was dead. Um, 
after the fact, yeah, police had searched uh, his apartment and they found $4,000. They even found an IOU from Anna for $1,000 where she was going to pay him back a thousand bucks, supposedly. And uh, there was a Valentine to him from her and Oscar. She always used her son to pull the heartstrings of these men as well. And I found that interesting that she signed the Valentine with both her and Oscar's name. You know, mm-hmm. and an extra sort of twist the knife. But yeah. um, her and Albert had met at the Blade, which was that casino on Vine that was owned by mobsters, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And they both loved to play the ponies. So they did that together for a little while. Mm-hmm. And before Anna decided oh, to do yeah. him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got we've got multiple victims here. After Albert, uh, we've got Jacob Wagner. Jacob Wagner was the gardener, another German guy. Um, She told him that she was his long lost niece. She showed up at his door. You know, Mr. Wagner having a a great knowledge of his family history. Mm -hmm. Mr. Wagner having a great knowledge of his family history knew he didn't have a long lost niece, but he bought Mm -hmm. the story anyway. And uh, he liked her. He thought she was a nice girl. She hung around. Uh, he, He was dead by june 3rd of 1937 so that was another just a few months long sort of relationship you know it's mm-hmm. interesting wagner uh had a neighbor named luella kohler and anna had brought over some ice cream to uh, luella one day and this is kind of interesting because this will kind of come up later in the story after luella ate the ice cream she had to be hospitalized During her hospitalization, her room was burglarized and there was money and jewelry stolen. Oh. Yeah. And she, Mm. she lived right next door to Jacob Wagner. Uh, You know, a lot of these pieces were kind of put together after the arrest, but um, it's really interesting to see like no one was safe around Anna Marie Hahn. She was down to hustle anybody. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's interesting, too, about the Wagner case was really what did her in there. And this was the case that she was ultimately arrested and tried for is Jacob Wagner was she had forged his will and changed everything around. His will left her seventeen thousand dollars. Holy smokes. Right. Left her seventeen thousand bucks. And she what really got her caught about this and was the great evidence they need was she had forged the will but with a date prior to her ever meeting him he had the will the will was drawn up in january she didn't even meet him until months later but she neglected to change that date so even though she went in and changed some of the verbiage around the date still stood which was an indictment against her because she hadn't even met the guy yet so right did you get all that? Sorry. Yeah, I did. I was wondering just one $17,000 in 1930s money has to be a bonkers amount now. It is. And I, I, I did a core a correlation thing. Uh, keep talking and I'll find how much. Yeah. And I also wonder how she was able to forge the will if she had like a typewriter handy and then white out. Like, how are you right, going to make somewhat convincing will? forgery like, I mean, did right? she just find the beneficiary put in white it out 
put it into a typewriter, align it just so, and then very carefully write her name correctly and hoped it fit. Yeah. So, I mean, people were not double checking stuff back then. Everything is Do people almost- double check stuff now? That's no. also a good question. No, they don't. <laughs> And people like Anna Marie Han rely on people like that because it's yeah. unbelievable how often the ball. Yeah, exactly. Retrospect. But um, okay. So that was, that was Jacob Wagner. Um, I thought the Luella, his neighbor thing was interesting too. Like she just sees this lady. Hey, let me poison this lady and burglarize her apartment while she's in the hospital. There must've been something in the apartment she saw that interested her. If it was her, I mean, it may not have been, it could have been any number of people that lived around that area. Right. The area, but that is kind of an interesting coincidence. Yeah. Maybe it was ice cream from her deli. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All I know is it had her special ingredient in it. Mm, arsenic mm. for that tangy <laughs> aftertaste okay our next victim is george zellman he was 67 years old uh he lived at 1717 elm street so right there in the heart of otr as you mentioned um he didn't know anna long either he became ill on his last visit with her uh she he had hired her as a nurse as well from an ad that she had run It was interesting because uh, he was one of the few people that was found to be poisoned with croton oil. Croton is a plant. Um, There are different varieties of it. It's a house plant. You'll see it around. This particular variety, the oil from it uh, can cause serious gastrointestinal issues, uh, sores on the face, internal bleeding. It's it's really deadly. Um, It was used originally as a, a laxative. Oh man. Yeah. Right. That's in a terrible very, way to go. Yeah, in very scant amounts. And but she was giving it like full bore. Oh, that poor man. I know, right? Oh, like, that poor man. Pretty horrible way to die. And you know, her last victim that we know of was George Obendorfer. This was the guy, yes. the whole Colorado Springs connection. Yeah, that it, this was the crazy bit. Now, Zellman, though, I want to go back to him. He also left her a hefty sum of money. It's my he? understanding it was like $17,000 again. Yeah. seventeen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, she should have been just rolling in the funds from just doing this. Had she been spending them responsibly? I don't know if somebody who is a serial killer is going to be doing that responsibly. But yeah, it's a lot an- of money. It is a lot of money. And I saw that she, when she was back playing the ponies, that she would set her loss limit for 50 bucks, which was $750 of today's money. So when she gambled, she was ready to go. And her, her sort of mental number that she was lose is $750 in today's money. You know, it was 50 bucks back then, but that's a lot of money. I mean, this lady was to go through 17 grand, 17 grand. She was uh, playing those ponies and not winning a lot, it seems. Wow. I I just had to do the numbers because I was just too curious. So it's $312,000 in today's money is what $17,000 was back in 1937. There we go. So this woman, she could have lived the lap of luxury on one dude's 
inheritance yeah. money and sent Oscar to a good school. Mm-hmm. And in, instead she was gambling it all away and then finding a new victim, which was yeah. George Obendorfer. Poor George Obendorfer. He was a shoemaker. He was 67 years old, another German guy, respected in the community. Um, she met George in Cincinnati, uh, struck up a relationship as a caregiver and came up with this big idea to take a trip out West. Uh, she met George in Cincinnati, struck up a relationship as his caregiver and came up with this big idea to go out West. Um, she told George that she had a ranch in Colorado. That's, well, with the amount of money that she was getting off these, she nights, she <laughs> right. So, you know, George said, Hey, you know, let's take a trip out West. The air's great. Help my breathing. So they mm-hmm. hopped on the train. They went out West, uh, from Denver. They came into Colorado Springs where they checked into a little place called the park hotel. Well, on their arrival, weird things started happening at the park hotel. For one thing, the innkeep's wife who owned, you know, these people owned the hotel. She had several rings and pieces of diamond jewelry go missing. Oh, right. So this, this, her being burglarized coalesced with the visit from, you know, this man and woman and this young boy that had Mm -hmm. come presumably from Chicago, they had said, and, uh, she starts putting two and two together. Like these people show up, weird things start happening. Um, so she calls the police, lets them know that she's had the stuff stolen from her. The police start asking Annie questions. Well, in the meantime, George Obendorfer is actively dying in the hotel oh. room. Uh, yeah. Annie has him transported to the hospital. The hospital says, okay, what is this man's relationship to you? She's like, I don't know. I just met him on the train on the way here. We happened to speak the same language and dialect. And he said he was very ill and needed someone to help him get to the hospital. So I'm bringing him here. That's all I know. Wow. So she basically drops this guy off at the charity hospital in Colorado Springs. And meanwhile, is part of this investigation into this stolen jewelry where the police start asking her further questions about Obendorfer. And mm-hmm. when everything comes to pass, they find out that she was indeed from Cincinnati and that she had brought Obendorfer from Cincinnati. It was Oscar that sold her down the river and told her that <laughs> they hopped on the train with Obendorfer in Cincinnati. He came with them. And I must have brought that old man 18 glasses of water on the train here, he said. Wow. So that's an that's an interesting symptom that goes along with Obendorfer's poisoning is excessive right. thirst. Right. Um, yeah. So as all of this investigation is happening in Colorado Springs, that was really the linchpin for catching her. Had she not stolen from this lady, I think she very well could have dropped Obendorfer off at the hospital, acting like she was just a good Samaritan who had met him on a train finished Mm -hmm. her dealings there in Colorado Springs, whatever they may have been, and come back Mm -hmm. to Cincinnati and continued Mm her uh, situation. But that was the straw that broke the camel's back right there, because as as cops started looking into these situations, they saw a high level of arsenic in Obendorfer's body. It was enough to kill four men. Oh, my goodness. Once they looked at that, 
they started looking at all of her relationships with these other men and then other exhumations started. And as they began exhuming these other bodies, they were finding also large high levels of poison. So mm-hmm. I think she could have continued on her, her scheme there if she hadn't seen that jewelry and thought it was pretty or whatever and decided to steal yeah. it. That kind of reminded yeah, the, me of the lady's apartment, you know? Uh, the, yes. Yeah. L- Llewellyn. Yeah. That reminded me like, it's almost like she just couldn't help herself. If she saw something yeah. she wanted, she was going to get it. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder why, what prompted her just, I guess, greed would just be simple old greed and jealousy, seeing something that she wants. And she's like, well, there's an opportunity. I'm just going to snatch it. Absolutely. And at this point, I mean, she's such a manipulator. I'm sure she's really feeling like she's good at this. And she, so mm-hmm. she's probably getting more and more uh, cocky, you know, brazen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, she even tried to poison her husband and her mother-in-law, you know, Phil, oh, geez. Yeah, little Phil. five foot Phil, five foot Phil and his mother-in-law both uh, were poisoned by Anna Marie or they think they were. Uh, mm-hmm. She had given her mother-in-law some chocolate covered cherries as a gift. And uh, she had at the same time, uh, you know, she was making her famous pancakes, mm-hmm. those big Bavarian pancakes everybody loved. And mm-hmm. uh, they both fell extremely ill, his mother and Phil. Phil was even so convinced that he was poisoned with the croton oil that mm-hmm. he took it out of the medicine cabinet and saved it and gave it to detectives later because wow. he was, yeah. That's yeah. thinking. Yeah. Wouldn't that be crazy to be living with somebody and like you're getting sick after they feed you. You're like, hmm, maybe it's the croton oil. You go to the medicine cabinet or wherever and you notice that there's more gone than before. So, I mean, like what kind of marriage is this? Well, yeah, it, it's, he's observant just like George, um, was it Heiss was also observant that things were going missing. They were getting sick and they put two and two together. Um, yeah. That all this medicine was being used and who is it being used on? It's definitely not being used on Annie. It's not being used on Oscar. There are only so many people left in the household. Mm-hmm. So did he divorce her? No, they stayed or married. Or did they just get, they stayed married, but they stayed married. Doing that. People kind of accused him during the trial and, you know, uh, that you haven't even gone to see your wife in prison. He said, no, I've been there twice to see her. He was a rather apathetic man. Um, he, he wasn't a man of many words. He wasn't really involved in like the hullabaloo of the trial. He didn't clamor on to any of that notoriety. He kept a low profile. Um, but. Wow. Yeah, that that's it. But probably for the best, though, I don't think he was involved with Oscar afterwards either. No, it's my understanding, no. like that Oscar was just adopted by a family in the Midwest mm-hmm. and uh, went on to uh, join the Navy, I think. Was it the Navy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. was the Navy. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, <laughs> Arsenic Annie finds herself arrested when she returns back to Cincinnati from Colorado Springs. Um, it was that the police detectives were waiting for her on the station platform as her train rolled in with a warrant in their hand and were like, I'm going to go look at your house now. 
Right. I would, I, I'm assuming that that's probably exactly what had happened because, you know, the authorities were fully, uh, abreast of the situation. They had been contacted by Colorado Springs. They knew what was up. You know, at the same time, Heist had uh, filed several lawsuits against her too. And he had been, you know, rattling some cages about this lady's trying to poison me. So really everything was kind of coming to a head at this point. Mm -hmm. um, she was arrested on August 10th, 1937. And she was charged with the murder of Mr. Wagner. Um, a trial started shortly thereafter. The prosecutors were Dudley Alcult, Loyal Martin, and Simon Lace. Some interesting mm. names there in the prosecution. Those are some team. interesting names. Yeah. And the defense was Joseph Hooden and Hiram Bolsinger Sr., who also happens to be my brother-in-law's great-grandfather. So, oh, wow. Yeah. I've got an interesting personal tie to the case. My sister yeah, is Yeah, you do. Yeah, my sister's married to Brad Bolsinger, and his great-grandfather was Hiram Bolsinger Sr. They owned a law firm here in Cincinnati for over 100 years called Bolsinger & Bolsinger, and they were her defense attorney. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. a really personal connection. <laughs> it is. It is. It was funny because I talked to my brother-in-law about the case, and he uh, told me that his great-grandfather referred to her as the buxom Bavarian. <laughs> So, <laughs> everybody called everybody called her the buxom bavarian so yeah, she had something a slew else. of names yeah i saw her pictures and you know she she struck me as a tad um you know spinsterish perhaps but you know these they names really that, normal to like me. a regular like, lady yeah like a regular lady and you know when you read the stuff that the media put out there they were talking about her dresses and they were talking about her coiffure and just like you would have thought she was just a femme fatale coming in to tear up the 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 courtroom it's but, just um, like edith clump it, it's like right it, it's both of these women were really like definitely with Annie. She did her hair. That was on point from looking at all of her photos. Oh, she did roller and, set on point. <laughs> yeah, that was on point. And her clothes for 1930 was also quite on point, just right. like Edith was quite on point for the 50s. But the way they look and the way that they're described, there's a bit of a dichotomy going on. It is. It's and very. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's it's okay. The way to describe her during the trial and in the in the newspapers beforehand, like while she was in jail, is quite different than how they describe her when she's been electrocuted. Oh my goodness. And, like, but we could get to that in a little bit. Like, definitely she was the buxom blonde. She's the Cincinnati slayer. The uh, blonde slayer was also used a lot. Arsenic Annie wasn't as used as often, but I kind of like the alliteration of that one. I, I like I like the alliteration too. I think it's got a nice ring to it. Yeah. But you know, arsenic wasn't the only thing she used. She used a lot right. of different applica uh, different poisons in her battery of poisons. So um yeah, so the the trial kicked off. The the judge was Charles S. Bell. It was interesting because Ohio and Michigan both have a law where they will allow evidence from previous crimes that will help tell the story of 
this Mm -hmm. crime. A lot of places will not do that. But because of that, the jury was allowed to listen to all of these other poisonings that, you know, investigators had determined were attributed to Arsenic Annie. So unlike a trial today where you may only hear, oh, you're only allowed to talk about this. Ohio and Michigan apparently have this law where if it is really pertinent to the case, you can bring in these aspects and oh, wow. they were allowed to hear about these other poisonings. So obviously I'm surprised the trial took 27 days with that. Yeah, that's true. Now, if I remember right, her jury was mostly made up of women too. Yeah. 11 housewives and one young man. So I'm presumably in his twenties, I'm guessing if they call yeah, him a young man. That's an interesting um, makeup of, for a jury mm-hmm. for those times. That, when I read that, I was like, wait, hold up. That's uh, not usually who ends up on a jury in 1930 Cincinnati. Right. Well, you can certainly say she was convicted of a, by a jury of her peers, for sure. That is of, true. Yeah. I mean, if you've got 11 housewives on your jury, I don't know if I want to be on the stand with 11 housewives on my jury, regardless That's of what That's why her hair is. was on point. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that could be a bad scene, a really bad scene. But um, yeah, it would, the trial, I mean, this was international news. Everybody was talking about the case. You know, like you said, when, when you look this up in the newspaper archive, stuff is coming out from all over the place. Oh, yeah. Um, this was a hot story all around the United States and even around the world back in her homeland. It was all over the papers. Oh, could you imagine her family reading about what their daughter did in Cincinnati and they're just like Annie (laughs) what you doing (laughs) we sent you to America to fix this you're not fixing it oh my goodness not bettering yourself yeah it's just oh you know that people looked at her family side-eyed just like yeah what's what's going on there right what kind of monster did you raise yeah Um, it happens yeah so um obviously her fate was sealed uh oh well okay backspace Mm -hmm. okay she actually uh anna marie Hahn took the stand in her own defense she denied everything of course Uh, yeah, sort of unconventional to put somebody on the stand like that, but they decided to. She it's a bold it. move. It is a bold move, but you know, I guess when your life is on the line, you you may just need to exercise that one last thing. Uh, maybe not the best idea. I don't know. This lady's goose was cooked. I think she was pretty much. You know, yeah, I think it was pretty she probably- obvious. She thought she was so charming and so convincing. She probably thought she could talk her way out of it. Like uh, she talked her way out of any other issue she's had in right. life. So, yeah. mm, no. Well, the jury was, yeah, the jury was not as nice as these old unsuspecting men because they convicted her and she was sentenced to death in the electric chair old sparky Mm -hmm. as it were and it was Mm -hmm. interesting on november 10th 1937 they did a whole sort of news conference thing and a new hearing to announce her fate and it was determined it was uh 
Judge Bell said that on Ohio, uh, that on March 10th, she would be put to death by electrocution. And this was March 10th, 1938. Well, her luck wasn't quite out. Uh, she did file uh, a few different petitions and appeals, and she went all the way up to the Ohio Supreme Court. But unfortunately, she would meet her demise on December 7th, 1938 in Old Sparky. Mm -hmm. uh, it was attended by John Sullivan. Oh my gosh, I do not know if you have read the Cincinnati Inquirer recount of what her day in the death chamber was like. Yes, I did. Oh my goodness, this woman did not go quietly. She did not go gracefully. She did not. She screamed, no. she passed out, she had to be all but dragged to she was disheveled she was like, her compared to all the other depictions of her she had disheveled hair like she had just woken up wasn't she in like pajamas um, yeah she had like like blue pants and an old brown raggedy shirt yeah her blonde hair was like you know grown out and she had like a sort of a a, a reddish uh auburn colored hair um she was screaming hysterically. She was, you know, she was unconsolable. She was being carried by the guards to the death chamber. She was calling out, um, you know, her, her electrocution was to set play, uh, take place at 8 p.m. And she wasn't pronounced dead until 8.13. Uh, mm -hmm. You can kind of account for a little bit of the histrionics there. At the, uh, at the last minute, she called for Father... John Sullivan, who came to her in her time of need to kind of give his last rites. They started praying the Our Father, and she got to the part and deliver, and the big buzz came. Yep. So people were actually afraid Father Sullivan might be electrocuted because he yeah. was in such close proximity to her praying the prayer. Yeah. But she got to the and deliver. She never made it to us from evil. <laughs> she yeah. never got to that part. Old Spark gave her the juice she started smoking uh she was wearing the black yes. leather oh my the goodness the hood. descriptions of her smoking afterwards they're just like as the smoke curled into the air off of her body and i was like holy what, what? <laughs> i did too it's like the veils of white smoke i'm like all right like i can almost smell that it's yeah so it's just her brain matter frying and coming out her ears this is I, 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 and being an illustrator, you're very visual, and I'm just like, ha, ah. yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It was a freaky description. It was over the top. I do have the description actually written down here in our notes. Oh, you do? Yeah, uh, just um a little bit about it. So, um, just to recount what it was, it the this is from the Cincinnati Enquirer, and it writes. When they were in the midst of the recital, the current was applied at 8.09 o'clock. Her voice was stilled and the current arced through her small body, small disheveled body. Mrs. Han's last words of the prayer were, and deliver. She never finished the rest of the sentence from evil, writes the Cincinnati Inquirer. Oh, man. And I was reading that and it was just goosebumps. Total goosebumps, total goosebumps. Yeah, and it's interesting. So after her death, um, that attorney, uh, Joseph H. Hooden, 
who was uh, co-counsel with uh, Hiram Bolsinger. That was her, her other attorney. He said, okay, I've got all these letters from Anna Marie Hahn. Cincinnati Inquirer had this uh, part of the Inquirer called the crime book where they would feature these crime it was it was still the inquirer but it was this special little expose thing they would do on hot crime cases so the crime book had said yes we want the letters and he said we'll do it but anna marie did it under the you know precedent that she wanted to be paid she wanted the money to go to little oscar so little oscar's got to get this money and we'll give you all these letters and they did and the deal went through oscar got the money and the crime book uh, at the Inquirer posted, uh, you know, published all those letters. And like they were... every day was a different letter they put on the front page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it seemed like at the end of the day, she she did admit to Zalman and Obendorfer. Um, she described Wagner's death in detail, but I was kind of struck by how nonchalant and perhaps uh, out of her, the way she described it, with Wagner's death, it seemed to come across as, well, I'm just a woman in the moment and I'm trying to figure out how to get through my day. And I, I just, she actually said uh, at one point that she was not herself at all. She went to the basement, she saw some rat poison and just a thought came across her brain that said, give him a little of this and he won't trouble you anymore. So she made it sound as it was very much not premeditated. It was very impromptu. It was just a woman at her wit's end that was kind of, you know, went down to the basement, saw the rat poison and kind of had this eureka moment wherein we know that that was not what was going on. I mean, this lady right. had an MO. She was doing the same thing with all these people. It's just interesting that even though she went ahead and admitted to this stuff, she did it with such, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, she wasn't really telling the truth, it seems like, but... Yeah, she was still trying to get that pity point. Yeah, to get she was out always of trying jail. to. Mm-hmm, always trying to pull one over on somebody, even posthumously. You know, mm-hmm. so kind of interesting yeah. as to what her personality, you know, was there. Yeah, some follow up. Her body was claimed by a local Columbus undertaker. There were no directives, and so she is buried in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, and that's where she that's where it ends basically uh, it's oscar like we mentioned went off to a foster family somewhere in the midwest he changed his name there's no way to follow up on that and was in world war ii and served in the navy and that's all we know yeah and her reputation lives on because we're still talking about her <laughs> oh yeah like she's everywhere um she's a really pop not popular a well-known arsenic Annie. Um, also for, Cin- not Cincinnati, but Ohio history, she was the first woman put to death with the electric chair. Mm-hmm. And she was only one of four women who have ever been executed in the state. And I actually brought in some just curiosity as going through all these things. I was like, who were the other people? When, when were they killed? So just as a little aside before we bring Jen and uh, Christina back on, So the first woman executed in Ohio was in 1844 and it was Hester or Helen Foster. And she was a African-American inmate at the Ohio 
penitentiary or the Columbus penitentiary as it was called back then. And she bludgeoned a white inmate to death with a shovel and was hung for it, hanged. And uh, it's now, if you read some of the scholarly articles um, about it now, she largely wouldn't have been put to death um, had she had done it in a even more recent time because it wasn't, she admitted it was not premeditated. It was very like, she active. did it. At, yeah. Yeah. It was active. She just did it. The, just what is the word? Um, like a crime of passion kind of in the there moment. There we go. Impromptu. Yeah. Just impromptu. Uh, the next one would be our very own Anna Marie <laughs> who was uh, electrocuted in 1938. First woman to be electrocuted with old Sparky. And then the next two were in 1954. And that was, Dovey Blanche Dean from Claremont County, Ohio. She was wow. 55 years old and killed her husband with arsenic. So that's what sent her to the electric chair, followed up in June of that year by Betty Butler, who was 25 of Hamilton County, Ohio, who was sentenced to death for murdering her lover in one of the lakes. And both of these women, we should totally do another crime episode about. Yeah, we should. They're interesting cases. Um, and Jude, uh, Betty Butler is also an interesting case because she was an African-American woman who killed her lover, who was also a woman. So that is interesting little snippet of crime history. I And there have been no women executed in Ohio since these two. Mm -hmm. So, but lots of men, there's been like over 300 men died via the electric chair. 315 was the total, I think, including these three ladies, excluding Helen. She was hanged. Yes. Yeah. Interesting data there. Oh yeah. And also the first person to be electrocuted was William Haas, who was 17, also of Hamilton County. (laughs) (laughs) What is it, Hamilton County? Why? Yeah, we, we have a nice little cluster in Ohio, apparently. Yeah. And he, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Miss William Brady in 1897. Wow. So, yeah. Only 17. So that's another case I'd be interested yeah. to look into. And another case that would be interesting if played out today, you know, would it end the same way, you know? Yeah. All of these cases, if they were to be played out today, would they have done the same way? Because definitely Betty's sounds like it's a crime of passion. And Dovey Dean, though, arsenic poisoning, a little bit more premeditation there. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. Interesting. And with that... Let's bring Christina and Jen back into the show so we can hear their reactions. Yeah. There's Jen. Hello. Hello. Hey. Wow, Hi. what a story. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because looking at the, you know, how quick, how swift, I mean, how swiftly she was, you know, jailed and executed. Um, do you think it, it, why was it so fast in that case? I mean, were people just kind of chomping at the bit to, because I mean, you know, I, I, capital punishment really is kind of falling out of favor now and it, as it should, and you could tell how unfair a lot of this stuff really is. I mean, not that her victims, 
you know, they they died horribly too. But I was curious, you know, when you do the history of that sort of thing, how has the attitude changed over the years? I think one of the reasons it moved so swiftly is that's just how they handled cases back then. I mean, you know, every capital punishment case is entitled to an appeal that just comes with the territory. And she exercised that appeal. What's interesting about it is how quickly her appeals moved through the courts. You know, these days it might take a year or two to have an appeal move through the court. She was really only in prison for a year before she was that. A year and a month or so before she was put to death. That these days is absolutely unheard of. Nobody churns and burns like that, not even Texas. You know, Texas, which is a state that doesn't keep people on death row a long time. They're known for going through very quickly. I mean, this is almost like a record. I would be interested in looking at other capital punishment cases and seeing if any, you know, went from soup to nuts that quickly. Because that that kind of blew my mind out of the gate. And, you know, originally when the judge had that big hearing, her date, uh, her execution date was scheduled way before it occurred. I, I just freeze up. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Say, <laughs> A okay. little bit. Also, can you guys hear okay. the bathtub being filled Initially, behind me? Oh, uh, I'm freezing. No, yep, yep. Okay. No. No, it's good. I heard okay. sigh, I think. Yeah, yeah okay. it, it, but it's, I don't hear water. <laughs> it's it's okay. bath time. So Aww. yeah, I'll okay. try to mute myself only to keep the oh, little no, child I'll hurry. screaming I... in the background. No, you're okay. Don't worry. don't worry. Don't worry. I'm sorry. It's because it, originally. Okay, it's interesting. It's interesting because originally the judge had actually scheduled her to be put to death on March 10th, 1938 which was a really quick turnaround time. Now, granted, she was able to go through with the appeals, but she ended up being, you know, put to death on December 5th. So, you know, she stayed alive a few extra months, but that was a very quick uh, from court to execution timeline. Yeah. yeah. And um, as you asked uh, Christina about Sorry, a little no worries. you're okay don't worry it, it's it's winter in cincinnati things go pear-shaped um <laughs> so actually in what was it from 63 up until 99 ohio didn't do the death penalty they suspended it and the U u.s yeah. government suspended it in 1972 so that's i think one reason why we don't have a whole lot of capital murder cases they were all commuted to life in prison and especially with women we just we don't have a lot i think right now there's maybe three women in ohio on death row and they'll probably just age out by dying before they actually will ever see um lethal injection not to mention i think we actually ran out of a lot of the uh chemicals used to put people put people down that sounds wrong to <laughs> for lethal injection um so right now, I think they've all been, there's a stay right now. There is. So, there, yeah. there have been lots of lawsuits about the different cocktails used and that mm -hmm. they don't work fast enough, inhumane, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. so, it's Unlike electricity kind of coursing through your body and then you start just singeing and smoking from... Smoking. When, did they, when did they stop the uh, using uh, doing execution by electricity? Because it was interesting. What it made me think of is we were talking about Edison just a couple of weeks ago 
And he really was kind of the person behind execution by electricity. You know, he was yeah. always doing those those demos. It was seen as cool more animals. humane. Yeah, which of course it's not humane at all. Um, right. You know, no. well, um, more effective so, than a firing squad. Yeah. So <laughs> executions via a electric chair were done from 1897 till 1963 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. here in Ohio. Are there still states? Excuse that the toddler laughing at that. That's just poor timing. <laughs> and overall. <laughs> And overall, in the United States, uh, since 2018, four inmates have been put to death by the electric chair. So it's definitely fallen out of favor. But in some states, it was used as recently as 2018. Not Ohio, though, as Kat said. Oh, interesting. I didn't mm. think anyone was still doing it. I yeah. mean, you know, it, it, it really is, you know. Uh, it's only recently that uh, I think it was Utah. Was the last state that still hanged people? Actually, really? wait. I, I said 2018. I should have said no state has used the electric chair since 2013. Okay. So. Well, but still, that's less that's than a decade. True. That's still right. I mean, hello, five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's but it's an interesting story. Just, I mean, you know, you occasionally hear, oh, you know, it'd be interesting to study like in a year or so. Do you think like quarantine because because um you know one thing about then like her you know praying on these guys you know back then i think it was easier for you to probably pray on someone because it was harder to get a hold of people do you think you're going to see an uptick of people that have been sort of murdered in the quarantine i do i think we're already seeing that i think we're already seeing that a little bit and i kind of get an interesting uh cross-section of that just based on what I do. I'm constantly keeping up with cases and murders around the country. And I really feel like the quarantine caused a bit of a a murder blitz. I think it's going to cause a baby boom. And I think it's, there's going to be simultaneously a death boom. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when people are locked up with other people, whether it be, you know, in prison or in the privacy of your own home, things don't necessarily go well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've already seen abuse go up. Yeah. Skyrocket. Children, yeah, so. you know, any vulnerable pop- bit of the population, it's just mm-hmm. been terrible. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, what if you were somebody, who was that nurse that was murdering a bunch of people? Like, what if you had... <laughs> There's a lot of them. The yeah. angel of what death if, from here yeah. in Cincinnati. Is, well, what if you had somebody like that that would just, like, murdering people and just said it was COVID that killed all these people? Oh, there I could see what be, you mean. We wouldn't know that for years or until that person was caught. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll see stories like that because it seems like you see an uptick of this kind of crazy behavior. And because I think when things get, I, I think it's because things start getting confused and muddled and people don't, like what we were just talking about before the show started about how hard it is to get what did you say like you can use uh, certain photos from the library of congress because they don't have the staff there to approve it mm-hmm. well i think it's like that now too with all municipalities of anything like they don't have the staff there to do anything and so they don't investigate things perhaps as well as they could right i mean it is a perfect opportunity perhaps to perpetrate some sort and of you don't uh, have the people in the crime scenes to be able to process them like there's so much there's only so much ppe that you have 
So you only have so many people in, that can enter a crime scene at one time to process it and uh, also people to go through and process all the evidence. Well, you know, that's one thing that's interesting. What they've said, a lot of these crime shows have made people think that like a lot of municipal government governments have a lot more money to solve crimes than they do. I mean, it's almost probably working out better where you have podcasts and people because they because they solving crime because they can actually look at the evidence whereas you don't have staff to do that in most cities no you don't and and what's really interesting too is people believe that because they see these things on these crime shows the cops and the departments are up to speed on the technology and also from a financial standpoint that the the departments can afford this stuff That is absolutely unequivocally untrue. You know, the majority of these departments, even in cities the size of Cincinnati, are not currently using things like genetic genealogy. Mm -hmm. Crime we hear about on a daily basis. Genetic genealogy solves another case. You know, so you're thinking in your mind, oh my God, surely every police department is using genetic genealogy. Absolutely not. You know, we still have rape kits shelved from the 80s. You know, and people are thinking about, you know, genetic genealogy. It's it's a little bit of a pipe dream based on budgetary constraints and allocation mm-hmm. of funds. It's it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, we've worked a little bit to try to get the word out to Cincinnati uh, law enforcement about genetic genealogy. And hopefully it gets there. I feel like that there are a few cases, you know, that could be solved and helped along by that. But it is expensive. And, you know, most genetic genealogists work for free. Uh, It's typically, you know, they'll do a GoFundMe for a Jane or John Doe or just, you know, DNA Doe Project will just spearhead the whole thing and everybody's working for free. It'll be interesting when police departments and everybody gets up to speed and everybody can kind of start working together and communicating. I think a lot of these crimes will be solved lickety split. A lot of it's just been, you know, departments not communicating with one another. Mm-hmm. Oh, along, yeah. the, along those lines with Golden State Killer, because I listened to Murder Squad with Paul Holes. I think he, he had hey there, mentioned... Murder Squad. <laughs> Love you. Yeah. Um, we love you lots but he he had mentioned that he couldn't even compare his sample with another sample from another because the technology he had to wait years for the technology in his office to catch up to what they had absolutely and i was just like oh that's why that's why that stuff sits for years and doesn't get tested Mm -hmm. not not even mentioning the money aspect of it absolutely not and that and there are other aspects of it too and Mm -hmm. i see this a lot you know with the case i'm working uh you know in the late 70s and early 80s a lot of these police departments just didn't want to talk to one another Mm -hmm. there was a little bit of the kies mas macho we're gonna solve Mm -hmm. it you know and especially you know in california where every little beach community has their own police department. And then Mm -hmm. you've got the LAPD presiding over the whole thing. And then you've got the sheriff's department. I mean, it's, it, when I watched the night stalker documentary a couple of weeks ago or whenever it came out and they were talking about all the police departments communicating back and forth. I'm like, Oh my God, this is exactly what we're dealing with on the toolbox killers case, because these guys didn't really talk a lot, you know, but when they did start talking, things started happening and you know as a woman and as a communicator I watch some of these old crime things and I'm like 
what is up with these guys? You know, yeah. we want more women in law enforcement. We would have asked this question, you know, day one. But, ego. you know, it is it's what it ego. is. Ego. Well, it reminds me of the Whitechapel murders, too, with Jack the Ripper, Mm -hmm. because you had the London police and Whitechapel not talking to one another and Mm -hmm. like actively destroying each other's evidence. It was extremely frustrating. It's absolutely counterintuitive. It makes Mm -hmm. no sense to me logically, but hopefully we're moving past there, you know, and (laughs) I feel like more people are like in the know as to what's going on in their local police department. You know, with the advent of the Internet and stuff, people are just like plugged in. I don't feel like it's ever going to be as bad as it was. I feel like there's got to be a silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. Part of this case also feels like, um, and this happens in a lot of immigrant communities when you have murder cases and stuff where people speak a different language than the police and stuff like that. And people are being abused, you know, that it doesn't get as much attention. Like when you hear about, um, you know, uh, really it's, it's a lot of different, you know, we've had waves in the U.S. of people coming from China, from Mexico, from Ireland, from, and a lot of those communities, uh, uh, you know, spoke their native languages. And if there was a murder kind of case, it wouldn't get the attention from the police. Absolutely. You know, and it seemed like she was going after people that didn't speak English as their first language. Mm-hmm. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. And, and there is an issue with serial killers of, I guess we call them minority groups happening right now. And uh, like, oh, what is it? Oh, Jen, maybe you know this. It's affirmative murder, I believe. They were just on Jensen and Holes, the murder squad. Oh, uh-huh. um, And it is a podcast dedicated to just minority groups and yes yes yes, murders that are happening there and bringing them to light um yes affirmative murder is um the the podcast it's wonderful i like i love listening to these guys and it brings in a whole new um just viewpoint and broadens your horizons um for what's happening around not just our country but other countries we also have um the murdered and disappeared indigenous women of mm-hmm. uh canada and parts of the united states and i'm forgetting the acronym right now but um also that's another murder squad thing where they're bringing in mm-hmm. more light about these women that are just disappearing and we also have the trans murders that are happening around the united states where we're having trans uh people who are brutally murdered and just found in alleyways and in dumpsters and we may have a serial killer targeting that particular community so there's a lot of communities that are being targeted that are not getting the airtime they really should be getting and thankfully because of podcasts and stuff go jen what were you gonna say no because along those lines it i think a lot of it has and i know i've said this before don't assume i think it goes with assumption, right? Like a sex worker can't be raped. We all know that's BS. Yes, Mm -hmm. they can, you know, or a woman can't murder. Yes, they can, you know, Mm -hmm. it just, uh, it boggles my mind when the police obviously don't have the right person, but they just dig their heels in and say, we think this is the right person. It fits our theory. It fits everything. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. 
public, you know, and then, or somebody's acquitted and proven not to be the killer, but they still will not go out and find the actual person that did it. So that person just gets off scot-free and this other person has to live with the stigma of what the police have done. And I don't know what the answer is for that to correct that other Mm -hmm. than don't, don't assume. And if you, if something, if you have one question, you answer it and then it's, it's the scientific method, right? You get the answer, no matter what that answer is, whether you agree with it or not, you have to go where it goes. Right. But the scientific mm-hmm. method takes work. God forbid. Well, and then there falls in line with the money and mm-hmm. the time and these the I understand police officers are burnt out because they work like crazy and work very hard. And same with um homicide detectives. I can't imagine having to deal with that every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's That's just so difficult. Well, and even like if you get burned out at your job, you just don't care anymore. You know, mm-hmm. true. So. And that's how all those rape kits just sit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you yeah. get evidence for any type of crime that gets mishandled, mislabeled, or um, just put in a plastic bag and set in a really hot storage locker. Well, mm-hmm. congratulations. You've just ruined all the evidence that was in there. Can, yeah. I, can I ask a question that, that I was really curious of? Uh, uh, you said she wrote a 20-page confession. What were the circumstances of her writing the confession? And what did it say? Did it say why she, you said she confessed. Did she say why she did it? Well, she did that specifically for monetary. Uh, to be so for, for her, it was all about the money. For, it was yes. always about the money. <clears throat> Yeah, Mm -hmm. she gave this to her attorney and said, hey, have this published in Cincinnati Crime Book. Get some money off these guys and give it to Oscar. Um, I'm going to give you all of these letters. It's going to give a detailed confession, but I'm going to do it under the caveat that you make sure that uh, Oscar gets recompensed for this from the Cincinnati Inquirer. And she did it. She didn't do it out of, you know, the kindness of her own heart or whatever. She definitely, you know, put a dollar sign on that. Do you think she told the truth in it or do you think she embellished it? I think she did what, uh, I think she told the truth, but she told it eh, slant. Um, I don't think she told the complete truth. I think she told the truth as she wanted it to be. She didn't even touch on the murders of anyone other than uh, Wagner and uh, Obendorfer and uh, the other gentleman, uh, George, uh, oh my goodness, Zellman. there's a lot of Georges. George Zalman, <laughs> yeah, she had a George, George, George. I think we had there's three, but yeah, yeah. George Zalman and uh, Wagner and Obendorfer are the only ones she even discussed. Wagner, she discussed in detail, and as I mentioned, she made it some kind of happenstance, you know, mm-hmm. like I just went downstairs and I saw the rat poison, and you know, yada yada just yada. Just like this would be great in coffee. <laughs> Right, right. You know, it reminds me of, you know, what I thought about it out of the movie Nine Nine to Five five. with Dolly Parton and everybody's in the thing, given the rap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's literally what went through my mind. I was cracking up. I watched um, that recently. I really like that movie. I love it. It's one of my all time. Completely relevant today. Completely relevant. Totally. 
yeah, yeah. it's scary but it is still yeah. extremely relevant so yeah, she I kind it. of yeah. made it look like it was an accident and did she kind of make herself out i mean did she take responsibility for her actions at all or did she because i mean it sounds like she had a huge gambling problem yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's an understatement of the year mm-hmm. go ahead cat Oh, no, it it was. Yeah, she had a huge gambling problem. So for those who are playing at home, the two people that she did not say that she murdered were Ernest Kohler and Albert Parker, which were, I don't know if they were the first. Ernest was the first. I don't know if Albert was second. Yeah, he was. Ernest was and Albert too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those two, she did not admit to being a part of their deaths, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I, I don't. They were, uh, I don't, they were clearly premeditated. Like she knew what she was doing and yeah, she was just trying to save herself and, and Oscar at the, with the 20 page confession. How is poison not premeditated? Right. I mean, hello, it's always premeditated, right? I have tripped and I have spilled spilled this poison everywhere. (laughs) No, like I don't even have. I mean, I have poisonous things in my house, I'm sure, like cleaning products, but they're not anywhere near food, you know, mm. so you would have to have delicious. Specific... Yeah, it just it, the amount of time it would take me to go into the basement and get the bleach to put in someone's coffee. There's ample time there to rethink my <laughs> what I'm doing, you know, it but just... we are of sound mind. Well, that's true. That's a probably prime... comfortable yes. circumstances where we that's could say, well, that's very silly, but there are people yeah. this year that tried to put bleach up their bum bum. Well, that's so, true. Yes. Um, <laughs> not everyone is of sound mind and of, that's um, true. Yeah. And this trying is... to apply logic to an illogical person. Yes. Yeah like i said daughter of somebody who's bipolar they don't know what they're doing sometimes yeah it's when they're in a manic episode sense and logic do not exist Mm. and you are just kind of there for the ride hoping no one's dead at the end and in her case she had no one watching out for her butt and we got five guys that are dead well, you know, I have a, qu- a question. Like when we when we report on female serial killers over male serial killers, do they tend to make the men seem like they're more premeditated and calculated than women? You know, what do you guys think when you've looked at a lot of cases? Like, do I mean people like? I think it's the other way around. Yeah, okay, I'd say okay. opposite. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so how do they? How do they usually like? How do they? usually paint a female serial killer that's different from femme fatale absolutely vilified out of the gate femme fatale mm-hmm. that's precisely what we were talking about with the newspaper articles focusing on what she was mm-hmm. wearing and her mm-hmm. blonde locks and her petite frame and trying to make her sound like she's like Greta Garbo or something you know mm-hmm. and Kat and I are saying they're like what this looks like a regular mm-hmm lady that woman looked like me the way they perpetuate this i mean Mm -hmm. you're ready you know when you just read it versus looking at the photo you're you're ready you're expecting like a a, Uh you know a siren of the screen here and then you're expecting barbie to pop out yeah it's crazy sex sex craze wanting to get the man away from the the housewife 
you know, I Absolutely. recently watched because I got my subscription to D- Discovery Plus, and oh, I watched. Congratulations! Yay! I watched. I think it was Who the Bleep Did I Marry? And I think um, Mrs. Butterfuco was on there talking about when Amy Fisher shot her, and while. I'm not taking blame away from Amy Fisher for what she did, but the way that she was portrayed. And I remember when the three movies that came out, all the TV movies that came out about her, one with Drew Barrymore and I think Long Island Lolita. (laughs) Yeah. They all came out at the same time and they're like portraying her as this sex pot teenager that seduced this man. Her name was literally Long not... Island Lolita and she was mm-hmm. underage. Yeah. Like these like, days, that, that would be child molestation. Case. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yes, that just look at that, Christina. That is how women are, women killers are portrayed, unless they're like Eileen Warnos. And she's still completely to this different. Day. Yeah. 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 But I think men are more prone to crimes of passion then uh especially if a gun is involved because that's mm-hmm. their preferred method of killing right they either beat bl- they bludgeon they shoot they use a weapon of some sort women will flip in kill you in your sleep you know because that's when they can do it especially if they've been abused for 15 years and you know mm-hmm. but fascinating anyway i was just thinking of (laughs) laura bell devlin have you ever heard about the case of laura bell devlin Mm -mm. this is a very quick aside so she was she was just murdered her husband she was in uh, both she and her husband were in the her their 70s back in 1943 and i wrote about her in cincinnati or ohio's haunted crime and she killed and dismembered her husband and put him in her stove and in her wood burning um, pot belly oven um, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. stove, I guess, and tried to cremate him at her own house and then spread his bones and ashes all over the backyard. Wow. Okay, it that's was... ingenious thinking. And her intake photo mm-hmm. at Newark, I think it's Newark. Uh, yeah, the old county jail there. Um, looks like something straight out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Whoa. Because you you got the really bright light coming from the bottom, hitting her in all the wrong places <laughs> and sh- making her look even more crazed than what she really... Well, she was still pretty crazed. But um, it just reminds me that, yeah, she probably bludgeoned to him when he bludgeoned him to death when he wasn't looking. Mm-hmm. When, back turned to her and probably got knocked out with a shovel or something yeah so yeah wow. it was just not, yeah not to say that women don't kill that way especially now with guns they're much easier mm-hmm. you know you can right. shoot from a distance they're tidier but all right i mean and depending on where you hit them women typically it's hard for women to beat a man to death with their bare hands because mm-hmm. we're just usually mm-hmm. not as strong as some big strapping mm-hmm. dudes our same age so mm-hmm. and, well, and is, particularly yeah. shorter too well thanks for suggesting <laughs> yeah. this topic amy this is really yeah. interesting i enjoyed learning about this i had never heard of this story before and i know i'm going to look at all these buildings differently i know i, I kind of yeah. want to go find them and take pictures of them yeah that like would be fun. 
Alms is still there. Um, uh, the big fancy house that she got from the first guy, Mr. Kohler, it's gone. Um, actually, it would have been like right there. Like, you know, if you're on 75 and you take Hopple Street exit mm -hmm. right there where Camp Washington Chili is. And then there's mm -hmm. the U.S. Chili across the street. Mm -hmm. If you hang a left at that light and go uh -huh. down Coleraine right there, that house was right there sort of in view of where that big shell station is right really? there. Wow. That's okay. an empty lot. It's totally gone, but it was a, oh, it was a doozy. It took up that whole corner. Oh, wow. Oh, man, I'll have to say if we could, I, I love looking at old architecture, you know, mm. from Cincinnati. It, it, it breaks my heart to see all the, you know, those old buildings torn down. I know, um, me too. And actually for, for people that are interested in, in seeing where we've talked about some of the tools, we the Urban Sketchers in Cincinnati went to the police, me there's a police museum in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, it's on, what is, what street is that on? It's on, um. oh, it's on, it's, isn't it on, uh, it's not on Walnut. Hold on. Yeah, it's over. It's, yeah, it I think it is Walnut. It's like, is it? it's a Central Parkway, right? Yes, it's, it's over there kind of on the west side. Yeah, and, um, it, it, of the downtown and if you want to see like the old tools they used to use they have a bunch of old stuff there and it's really interesting <laughs> actually it's 308 reading road yeah okay and that's what it is yeah, you it's were like doing the same thing pendleton. i was i was like where is this it's like close to pendleton yeah um, exactly but it's, it's by the casino and all that if you want to see like the old type of surveillance stuff and you know it, it, it's pretty fascinating to look at the the, the collections of stuff there um, mm -hmm. and well, and let me say, no relation to Kohler. Disclaimer, <laughs> okay. disclaimer. Technically, my name, it's K-O-E-H, and it's supposed to be pronounced Kaler, but at some point, it was Kohler, and it's always been Kohler, mm -hmm. and my Kohlers don't come from Cincinnati. They come from Kansas. Oh, you're so, the Kansas City okay. Kohlers. We're the Kansas City <laughs> Kohlers. Okay. That sounds like a mm -hmm. team. That's like a, like a roll through. <laughs> well, but on that note, um, yeah, uh, Amy, do you want to give us your information for the Skeleton Key Chronicles? Yeah, I would love for everybody to check out my blog, The Skeleton Key Chronicles, at www.theskeletonkeychronicles.com, or just follow me on Facebook or Instagram, and you can see all of my stories that I share. I kind of keep up with current cases and share some weird cases that are happening on the daily on my Facebook page. So if you just have a penchant for true crime and kind of like to be in the know about the cases that are happening, follow my page on Facebook. I show a lot of uh, cool stuff on there of weird and wacky cases happening around the country and around the world. Yeah, cool. Thank well, you. And thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. I love you guys. It's always so much fun. Yeah, we yeah. look forward to having you on again because uh, for great, sure, really interesting topics. Yeah, we I got a lot it. of dead people to cover. That came out wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, All right. The term you said, burn and churn. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> burn and churn. Just, All right. Turn and burn. Something churn like that. Churn and burn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, everyone, thank you for joining us on Hometown Haunts. You can always send us your hometown haunts. Mm -hmm. We have a new email, especially for that, which is hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. You can also follow us at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram and Sin Cabinet Curio, that's C-I-N and then Cabinet Curio on Twitter in 
you can also find all of us on Twitter because we're all friends with one another. So keep it spooky and have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.